Hi friends, I'm music journalist Mikey Carl. From Mushroom, this is 180 Grams. This season, the story of Run Home Slow, the second studio album by the Teskey Brothers. A plane carrying Paul Butler lands at Melbourne's International Airport, northwest of the city. That's true, actually. Yeah, you're right. Born in the Isle of Wight, he's a musician and producer, now living in California. It's been a long trip from LAX. It was winter getting on the plane. Now, he's walking through the ground floor arrival concourse, through the glass doors and into the warm air of an early summer evening. He takes his phone off aeroplane mode, gets a signal and messages Brendan on WhatsApp. Josh was supposed to pick him up. Josh was getting a vocal lesson and he was already in the city. So he was like, oh, well, I'll pick up Paul because it's right near his flight and then we'll come back. And turns out Josh's lesson goes too late. Paul's flight comes in at a different time. He's messaging me being like, uh, I'm in Tullamarine, where do I go? Yeah, they just kind of like, we're, we're here. And I was like, oh, that must be probably five minutes, ten minutes from the airport. For those playing along at home, Melbourne's International Airport to Warrandyte is 40 kilometres, more than 90 minutes in peak time. Here's Liam. And he jumped in a cab, fell asleep straight away because he's been in transit from the States and he's, you know, been a workaholic. I know he was really busy leading up to that. Yeah, I woke up in Warrandyte, really, you know, realising that I'd been in the cab for like an hour and a half, two hours or something. And it's pitch black and he rolls out of the cab and I think he's sort of like, where the hell am I? Stepping outside the cab... It's quiet, a little too quiet. Gravel lines the road and Paul gets his bags together, then heads for the house light down the drive. And I just kind of wander in at a point. They're like, hey, you made it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I did, I made it. Halfway across the world. This episode, three intense, very sweaty weeks in December 2018 to record the songs for the album start of December and whatever happens Paul's leaving Australia on a plane by Christmas the band chose to record at home in Warrandyte Brendan lays out the reasons it's not like we got signed and they were like here's a million dollars do what you want you know we got signed and we had a very modest advance by design as well because we didn't want uh, you know we didn't want to have a huge debt over our heads and we have the studio ourselves. So it's really set up for us to just sort of go, well, we only need what we need. Al Parkinson. It's not just your average studio on the north side of Melbourne. This is something that they have poured everything into. They're there all the time. There's this really beautiful swing chair. So they have this kind of, they've got a deck which kind of leads out of the studio, the, the tracking room. And I love that swing chair so much because you can sit there and just watch everything that's going on. You can look in the tracking room, you can look in the recording room and see everything. The Teskey Brothers studio is in okay shape, not fantastic. And the band is coming up a very tough stretch of work. Their manager, Jeremy, ponders the schedule in the lead up. So I guess a bit of context, coming into this recording session, which started at the very start of December, uh, the guys had done a lot of touring. They'd been to Europe, 
putting some groundwork in over there. They'd been on a tour of New Zealand. They'd played a handful of festivals in Australia. I guess across the board, they were pretty exhausted. They'd also done a film score. Coming into these sessions, I already sensed that they weren't at their best and it was going to take every ounce of effort and energy to push through to get these three weeks of tracking done. Knowing they'll need help in the weeks ahead, a young local muso is at a loose end and joins as assistant engineer. Hi, I'm Soren Mariassen. That's him. Years ago, Soren won a local battle of the bands and the prize was recording sessions in Sam's home studio. Ooh. He's at the end of a busy year and jumps at the chance to leave that behind. 2018 was a really, really busy and year for me and very, very stressful and, yeah, one of the less good years of my of my life so far. In the weeks leading up to recording Run Home Slow, I just sent Sam an email saying, hey, what's happening at the studio? Is there anything I can help out with? I'd actually been up in the few, you know, in bits and pieces a couple weeks before the record had started. And Sam's hope was that the studio would sort of be clean and clear and ready to go for the start of the recording. But realistically, it wasn't. And also realistically, it probably never would have been. And that's just how it is. And that's, and that's okay. The, the space really captures the whole energy of, of everyone there who, you know, the, the bustle of, of, a, of a share house with, you know, there's gardening going on, there's cooking going on, there's yelling going on, there's mostly good laughs from Josh and the rest of the boys. There wasn't a specific point where it was like, oh, you're... You're doing the record. As Soren said, Sam's studio is a bit of a dog's breakfast. He was very good at getting behind those quirks and really kind of, um, and figuring out, okay, yeah, that channel doesn't work. So that's why we need to patch around here and do that. And, you know, and really quickly got a grasp on, on, um, on my studio, which is a very hard studio for other engineers to jump in on because, because there's cables everywhere. There's a lot of quirks. Brendan is especially keen to get to work following a couple of prep days. It wasn't a disaster from day one, but it kind of was. Simple things, like the first day the tape machine breaks. And it's just like, okay, so what do we do now? Let's get in the room and just play the songs to Paul. You know, we'll just jam. And then we get in the room and, you know, the guys can't play the songs. You know, they haven't learnt the songs. Like, because the way it works is, so, like, everyone writes. Um, so if you haven't written the song, obviously you need to learn the parts that the other person has written or at least come up with your own parts and blah, 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 blah. And we sort of get in the room and, you know, we just quickly realise that the band can't perform the songs live. Full disclosure, Brendan is being diplomatic. Sam hasn't learned his parts yet. He's more of a freewheeling guitarist and in his defence, he's the only father in the group who has just returned from yet another tour to resume being a dad and a partner. I was also trying to juggle family life as well. So you've only got Paul here for the 21 days, you know, and, and um, well, how many days it was. And, uh, and then, then it's pretty much Christmas. So, so we kind of couldn't go beyond that. But Brendan is aware that first impressions last. And, you know, that's like, it's embarrassing for me, for one, because I've always prided this band on being like, we sound live the way we do in the studio. Mm-hmm. And that's what album number one is. The sound of album number one is a band that's been playing for 15 years, got in a studio and played their instruments and recorded it. Mm. There's minimal overdubbing and it was just, that's done. Mm -hmm. We quickly realized with this album, it wasn't going to be that. But it it worked out for the best because it meant that that gave us the freedom to not be locked into having to perform live 
and then we could really get into the arrangements and the songwriting. There was a few things initially on my little mood board going into this that I wanted to explore. And some of the first things I said to Paul were, I want to explore the arrangements, the compositions deeper. I want to get more into songwriting. I want to go further with the lyrical content, just basically taking everything further, but not making it Half Mile Harvest 2.0. Then that was informed by, okay, well, so how do you differentiate it, but keep in your own aesthetic? And for me, that was instrumentation was a big thing, making conscious decisions not to use, you know, certain horn sections or getting a sax in instead of a trumpet or arranging, you know, like so many things came down to the instrumentation, including pedal steel, different colors on the palette that could expand it far beyond Half Mile Harvest. Because the difference for me between something you listen to and like and something you revisit through your whole life and listen to again and again and again is that nuance. And that's what I wanted to introduce in album number two is just is nuance, basically. Central to the recording studio, other than the band, obviously, the walls, the floor and instruments, is the tape machine, a Studer A800 MK3. Sounds like a shaver or a jet. Sam bought it from Jimmy Barnes years ago. It has 24 tracks uses two-inch wide tape on a reel that's the size of a large dinner plate. The machine itself is probably older than any of the band members, stands one and a half metres tall and weighs a whopping 315 kilograms, a.k.a. trays heavy. Tape needs to be cut by hand, the way the band made their first album. This very finicky process happens after the Studer A800 records all the audio from the adjacent studio. Paul is there, ears and eyes open to where he's landed on day one. You know, they're like, well, we've got this beautiful tape machine. I'm like, great, okay. And there's a lot of emphasis around the tape machine. A little bit concerned about the rest of it. It smoked at a point. Smoke came out of it. Liam's in the room, eyes wide open, mouth agape. And this puff of smoke just <laughs> comes out of the machine. And we're like, we switch it off. We're like, holy shit, there's this acrid smell through the studio. There's this big capacitor that looks like a battery, like a, a, a double A, triple A battery. And it's popped and there's shit coming out of it and it stinks. And we're like, far out. Like, what are we going to do? Like, we need this for the tape machine. So I go into like problem solving mode and I look up the part number on the capacitor. And I'm like, you know, I found one, you know, in Melbourne. We could go and get it and we could try and solder it in. The tape tech, Des, is not available, um, but we need to get recording. And it's like, we've literally just started. Paul walks out of the room, gets his phone out of his pocket and rings Jeremy, the Teskey Brothers manager. In another part of the state, Jeremy sees the call and answers. Paul called me and said, uh, we've got a problem. And I said, so so what's happening? And um, and I thought he was going to say, oh, I've left, left, left my suitcase at the airport or, or, you know, someone's broken a leg or something. He said, the tape machine's not working and nothing's plugged in and this whole desk needs to be patched. I'm just... I'm just not sure that we're going to be able to start recording very soon. It is a unique space in that there's not much room and the control room has quite a lot of gear in it for the size of the control room and the other room, the tracking room, has not much room in it for a band to fit and I guess Paul was trying to get his head around how this was all going to work. Liam finally gets onto the tape tech. And he's eventually like, oh, just pull that part of the tape machine out, that component section and see if it runs and switch the machine on and it worked fine crisis largely averted although a knock to their collective confidence I'm gonna run the tape and we'll just listen as we go as well so 
Well, you you can leave them on, but you'll just hear a delay. Ah, oh, yes, yeah, sweet. All right. Um, yeah. Up to you. Now that you mention it, there was loads of hurdles, like equipment and the singer not being able to sing. Yes, that's correct. The singer not being able to sing. Uh, Josh Teske, explain yourself. You know, so I was just kind of getting over, a, you know, a pretty nasty cold, just which is just the timing. You can't time this stuff, you know, just leading up to the recording. So I'm just trying to trying to get over trying to shake this cold and trying to get all the you know got a bit of swelling around the cords and i was just sort of very vocally not very fit there was a there's a there's a note in uh, a really high bit in sunshine baby that i kept just having a go at it every couple of at the end of the session i try to hit that note and uh yeah just still couldn't do it still can hit that high bit so you can i i when i listen to the record i i feel myself being really strained you know really there's a lot of strain in that singing you know his voice is already pretty sexy isn't it so like adding phlegm and a cough to it didn't make it sexier he was always he was already peaking so i think in the end we just made josh not speak yeah that was it so josh didn't communicate he was writing stuff down. He had a pad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had a pad and was writing stuff down. It actually made a difference. I mean, it was, you know, there was a comic element to it. And also, really was, the less he spoke, the better he sung. Josh has a cold as summer is starting, just as the Teskey brothers are about to record their difficult second album. A bit more difficult now. Temperatures in Warrandyte over these three weeks reach nearly 40 degrees on some days. That's around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is affecting Paul, especially at the lodging they organised for him on the property, only metres from the studio. It's a shack in the bushy, hilly town on the Yarra River. He caught Josh's cold and he was pretty sick and he had a damp, cold slash hot steaming room to deal with each night. Sam knows there's a few others living there. Yeah, lots of spiders, lots of lots of animals that you know Paul's probably not too used to. You know, what is it? Oh, oh, like possums in the roof, maybe. You know, like so in the middle of the night, kind of just possums scratching around. You know, branches scratch scratching on the top of the. It's a it's a real bush property, I guess. So, well, there was a couple of moments where the whole thing moved, and I think it was just from uh, something like walking on the ceiling on the roof, and uh, that woke me up a few times. And then at one point, a spider walked across the floor and I could hear its legs like and that was the point where I was like I think I'm going to get an Airbnb a wise move at one point he called me I said how are you going and he said can I be honest with you Jeremy not great Soren arrives from his house down the road around 7am to warm the tape machine among other things every morning Think of the A800 as a classic automobile that needs to not only be warmed up, but a thorough grease and oil change every single day. I'd be running sign tones, so just like, Ooh, or like, ah. <laughs> I'm just going straight through the tape machine and it's so I can set the frequency correctly. And so that would involve me getting a little screw. It, it's just a very small little flathead and sometimes it wouldn't turn properly. And there's maybe like... 200, 300 little screws that I could possibly be turning. And so it's all about 
adjusting so it's actually ready to record at the at the right level and at the right gain and and so the sound that comes through the tape machine actually sounds like the guitar or the drums or whatever is being recorded that day so i can set the frequency correctly so that there's nothing you know it's not too bassy down down low like or too tinny or anything like that it's a sort of uh, big gray old machine but the primary kind of color you get off it is this the warm glow of the vu meters because they're all backlit (sighs) there's something really satisfying about working the tape machine because they're these big heavy rolls of tape you sort of slot them in and you turn them around and i have to you sort of screw them on and you slowly pull the tape through the all the different notches and and little rolls and different things and and get it all all on and then you have to rewind it all the way back to the start and then pull it through again and then you're ready to go Soren is a godsend he's also i guess an appropriated limb for paul indispensable to the day-to-day studio rhythm Soren. Soren. Oh, that's what paul would say he would always you'd just be like he'd be needing something he'd be like Soren. Soren's like the hero of this whole thing, yeah. to be honest. He's the unsung hero. And the Paul would be the, the bottle of clag. Soren would be the brush. My experience of the record was basically me trying to figure out how everything was working and trying to figure out where to plug in everything and what where does everything go? And I need to know right now because we've got to record this part. And Paul doesn't know and I don't know and neither does Brendan and Sam's probably not here right now for for whatever reason. And so so Paul is looking at me like he's not saying anything per se, but it's like I I I automatically you know, without him even saying, I was already putting the pressure on myself to try and figure it out right now. And I think that's part of the energy of a lot of the takes, especially earlier on in the process, because we were just trying to, like, actually get a sound at all <laughs> um, in, in the studio. Paul, how did we go? How are we feeling about this? Um, I am feeling good and confident. Good and confident? I guess, yeah. <laughs> hey, this is Liam Goff. Um, we put forward, I think, 12 or 13 songs to Paul and we agreed on we'll try and work through all of those. We probably won't get them all done, but we'd rather have more songs rather than less. We needed nine or ten for the album. And we made a priority list of songs that we thought were definitely going to go on the album, so we'd attack them first. And then the ones that we were unsure of that were less solidified in a concept and the demo was less solidified, uh, we'd work on last. The hardest part of anything is starting especially when it's false starting. But with everything operational, except Josh's vocals, they're away. The band tackles Let Me Let You Down. Here's Josh. We all just agreed right there and then. We had this little demo that we'd done and we were like, that is how we just want to recapture that. spending a bit more time, you know, getting the, the sonic qualities basically a bit, little bit better and just getting them on, running everything on the tape machine and getting all that vibe. And, but yeah, we just kind of had a listen through all the songs and sort of started thinking what, you know, what we're going to need. I think we went out and got a couple of whiteboards and just sort of started, you know, making a bit of a system on, you know, all the songs and what we thought they all needed and 
kind of brainstorming it a little bit and it was a slow start you know then it was a bit of a you know playing through all the songs no, no, no. the facts are gonna be wrong Jeremy hasn't visited the studio yet. He's been on the phone so far and now decides to make the scenic three-hour drive from his place one week into recording. I went down just to see how it was going and that was the point, I think, when the initial anxiety and stress of this session isn't starting so quickly as we'd hoped was starting to fade away and the guys were settling into playing through the songs and getting some things down to tape, which... I could feel there was a momentum picking up at the end of the first week and the vibe was good. There was lots of session players coming in and out. There were backing vocalists, there were keys players and and horn players and a saw player and, and many other people coming through. Soon enough, they're ready to have a go at putting down the tracks for the song Rain. Sam wrote Rain. Fun fact, it was originally called Is That Rain on the demos. It's inspired by some pretty sombre subject matter. Josh, who during the time of recording is only speaking every second day, explains. You know, I think Rain was a really good example of like, and that is a really, that's a song, you know, really a song about, um, you know, losing some friends, some friends who died and some some family friends who died. So it wasn't about one particular person, but it's about, you know, it's really sort of, it's Sam's lyrics, obviously, and about... um, you know, about the death of his sort of, uh, uh, I guess, father-in-law and then a, an old buddy of ours, sort of Ollie, Ollie Mock, who we can talk about. And he's an old, you know, young, you know, guy we went to school with and and he had a really sort of tragic accident. And and we always think of him a lot, you know. He fell in a climbing accident, you know, and that was a really, you know, so when, and that was a really, really sad time for us. And a lot of this song's talking about sort of those people who we've lost. Paul Butler's got a singer who can't sing properly, yes, but... He also has a determined young artist ready to have a crack. You know, I did a lot of ta- a lot of takes on that. You know, Paul might have had a lot of conversations with me about you know thinking about some of these people as I'm sort of singing this song and really trying to put all this. So when it was you know he's you know thinking about the you know all the emotion and everything I want to put behind it. So that you know when we were sort of doing this verse, I'm really trying to remember and and put that pain into the into the singing. And so that I think that's a you know, really key part of that song. And so you might you know, hear Paul saying, you know, I think that's it, but you know, can that one before where you were really at the, at the beginning, you were, you know, that was, that was, I really felt, you know, felt the, the feeling in that one. I really felt the, you, you were really capturing that. And, and I remember the one that, uh, the one we end up using and the one that was the take, I think there was a really good moment because I remember even mucking up the lyrics. I got the lyrics wrong, but I always thought that's a sign that when I get a really good take, because I'm so in the moment with the vocal take that I'm forgetting, I'm not even thinking about the lyrics anymore. We'll get back to the studio in just a moment. Rob Teske, Josh and Sam's dad, remembers Josh coming home after seeing the screaming eagle of soul, Charles Bradley, rest in peace. There was a time when he went to Wave Rock Festival and he saw um, Charles Bradley. He came back and he had this weird sort of look in his eye. He said, I just saw this guy. Charles Bradley and I've never seen anybody sing like that you know ever before it's just and he was just really really inspired by this 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 soul singer and uh, yeah there's a kind of a weird story about that because like years later they went back and played Wave Rock mm. and Josh went and there's a, there's an album with um, Charles Bradley one of Charles Bradley's album where he's lying 
in overalls on, on wave rock kind of thing. They wanted to go and take the same shot, you know, like, um, and they got Josh lying on this wave rock sort of almost spooky thing about it was that it was the night that they played there or the night that they did the photo was the night that Charles Bradley left this earth. You know, it was a kind of a really spooky coincidence that they, um, they did that to honor, to honor him, you know, like in a way. Glendon Blaisley, a muso from Malden, a town in the center of Victoria, was driven in to play a wood saw for the song Sunshine Baby. Have a listen. They're not exclusively recording inside the studio. Paul talks about the perils of capturing Hold Me. All six of them, the band, Paul and Soren, stomping away at the defenceless house. Uh, Hold Me was hilarious. Because it was, it compromised the, the the structural integrity of the entire property, because of the way that we were all outside doing the stomps and the claps uh, on the wooden decking. You know, there was there was moments I was like, "Is this safe? Should we be doing this?" You can tell the neighbours are looking over, like, "Shut up!" <laughs> it's just doing take after take of stomps and claps, but um, sounded good. That that house has good bass. Things are beginning to get going a bit. During the day, they're eating pizza and pasta takeaway from a boy named Sue in St. Andrews, shout out, plus snacks that Al Parkinson is bringing around. Good work, Al. Paul is settling in and drinking Casamigos tequila exclusively. Josh is on the craft beers each night. Sam and Liam are hitting wine in some cans, and Brendan is staying pure on the water. Paul's Jedi mind powers are getting good results. Liam. Um, And he had a great way of... Uh, cajoling us into getting a good performance. He was an amazing social manager of the studio. You know, he could tell when people's candle was nearly burnt down to a stub. Yeah, he knew when to send people home and when to give people a kick in the butt. He it was just really good to work with a producer that we knew could sing, play guitar, play piano, percussion, drums. He really had his head around all of the different physical elements of real instruments, I guess. Maybe the genius of Paul on this record is he knows mainly when not to say anything and when, and when to say something. And he's really good at holding the tension and really good at, at giving space for things that need to happen musically. One of Paul's techniques in the studio is to tease out and sort of lightly question the takes. Sam explains. Is that right? Does that yeah? But what what do you think, Sam? Does that sound okay? You know, and I, and then then it, yeah, it makes you, you sort of second guess it. It's like, does it sound okay? Become really clear and apparent that that we really need to um, that we really need to just pull sounds to start with, and if something's not right, change it. You know, get it right. You know, get it perfect. And and it was great working with Paul in that way because he has such an amazing ear as well and such an amazing engineer. You know, there's like there's thousands of ways that you can portray a piece of art so you focus in on one form and then sometimes you just without putting too much pressure on it but you just you know it's like is this the best way that we can do this is there another way that we can do this there'll be a pregnant pause I guess on the talk back and then just say you know yeah is that it yeah is it is it sort of moment is uh is that what what we're here for or is is that is that is that what we really want to be doing on this? 
and then just take people out of that. You know, it's just like it doesn't have to be like this. We can change it up a little bit. It doesn't matter. Getting less precious about it. That's all. See if we can mix it up. The first part of the record um, was devoted to drum recording. <laughs> Liam, what have you really liked about this process? It's been cool having the time to, um, yeah, experiment with gear and pull different things in and out. We've got two setups. We've got um, one sound set of drums down in the studio tracking room and then up in the house upstairs is a big open sounding room. So we've got another setup there for we're keeping those set up so we can sort of go between different sounds without having to start again so it's, yeah it's been good get you know redoing the wiring and 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 throwing some looms upstairs so they can just go and turf the girls out that live in in the, the you know they're like tenants upstairs it's like everyone out we need the drums this puts liam in his sights liam had made a small mistake in one of the demos a happy accident and paul runs with it in the demo for Let Me Let You Down, in the first bar or two, I'm playing the ride cymbal with my right hand, left hand, I'm playing the snare drum, but I lift my left hand off the snare drum and catch the hi-hats from underneath and you hear this whoosh sound. That's sort of a mistake, but in time, and it only happens that once and you, it's a mistake. Paul really liked that and that, that actual demo, Paul was like, unsure if we'd be able to after doing a bit of work on recording it's like i'm not sure if we're going to be able to beat the demo because it just had a vibe it was very live and we we knew it was just a demo so we were just playing enjoying ourselves being creative there's no stress and i think you could maybe hear that in the demo and there's a bit of demo artist going around but we ended up re-recording it but paul was like i want some of those mistakes you know, go in there and, and, and overlay some hi-hat, uh, you know, splashes, make them out of time. And I remember went through and we did a pass of me just hitting the hi-hat, but I'm trying to do it. I'm wanting to do it in time. He's like, no, 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 out of time. I want mistakes. I've got to pigeonhole these different ideas and we might, who knows, we might do 30 different takes with different variation. Paul's like, all right, this time just call me crazy, but I'm just going to get you to, you know, go from the ride back to the hi-hat halfway through the chorus, and then I want you to lift the energy and then end it with a big blasting fill. I'm like, okay, cool. So, all right, so second half of the second chorus, I'm going to go from ride to hi-hat, going to end that chorus with a big blasting fill. All right, cool, let's go. Hang on, we're just going to rewind the tape. If you want to, like, go to the start of the song and start recording again, it takes, like, 30 seconds to do that. And there's this sudden moment where you your brain has to stop. You have to pause and think like suddenly you have this moment of time where you can, your brain starts thinking about, Oh, what am I going to change on this take? Or what am I going to do? Or how am I going to set something up differently? And it gives you this moment, these, these pauses, these moments of time to actually reset and think and be like, okay, how are we going to do this right? And make this moment, the special moment that when people hear it, they'll be connected to it. They'll feel, excited and inspired by it and then you, you know you're sitting there and you know the tape's rewinding you've forgotten what amendments you're going to make and then you get into the song and you're like it's going well but what the fuck was i meant to do okay i'm in the second chorus okay on the ride wait was i meant to go to hi-hat was it oh and then there's just like these stressful moments where you're trying to make sure you've noted all the changes and you might have forgotten them in the time that 
the tape was rewinding. For the slightly jazzier songs, we decided to skin up the kit with really, really thin heads to get more of a timpani, but also jazz sort of sound. Because I was going to be playing really quietly. It's a bit more responsive if you have a thinner drum head. And so we've set that upstairs in the lounge room, which is this big sort of open space with hardwood floors, quite a high ceiling. It was very resonant. And we've mic'd that up. And so everyone's literally below me in the control room and there's no line of sight. No one can see me. So I'm up there with headphones on. Imagine you're the drummer in the Teskey Brothers. Okay, imagine. You're not in the same room as the band or the producer. You can't see anybody. You're underslept. You're having girlfriend issues. And you just want to nail the take and go home. And Paul and Brendan and Sam and everyone's downstairs. And they're all talking to me through the talkback mic. And we're getting into it and Paul's just being like, yeah, oh, that was good. It's great feeling. Could we just try playing a little bit quieter? I want 50% of that, that volume, you know, just try and play it. I just want it quiet. It sounds really good when you play really quiet. And they can't see me, but I'm lifting the drum brushes and drumsticks off of the, the drums. I'm talking like a centimeter, you know, to the point where it felt like, you know, when you, it's, you, you're told to stand still, like you try and freeze, like in, you know, if you're doing some movie thing or whatever. And, you know, you're, you're trying not to breathe and stuff. Like it felt like I was literally trying to play in time and with feeling, but only being able to move the sticks. Like I was barely even touching the drums, but they couldn't tell because they're downstairs and the microphones are so gained up and they're so sensitive because we're using these ribbon, Cole's ribbon microphones in a big resonant room. Um, and I remember I was really struggling with it. Paul just kept going every take, just a little bit quieter, just need another 20% quieter. And I just wanted to say to them, you guys have got no fucking idea what I'm doing up here. Come up and see. I'm barely even touching these fucking drums and it's making it so fucking hard for me. But Paul was able to like massage a good performance out of me. But yeah, I wanted to tear my own head off and everyone else's at that point. I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, I guess I enjoy torturing drummers a little bit. Liam's a great drummer. He was he was good to work with. I think the worst thing you can do, particularly with an established band with someone like the Teskey Brothers, is tell them what to do. That's it's it's about getting out. It's it's getting you know the, the what's needed out of them rather than telling them what they should be doing. I mean, we we went deep into Otis Redding, and honestly, I I haven't done that up to that point. Like, obviously, we all know and love Otis Redding Records, but they went deep into it. And then they, they helped me have a like good look at what the hell's going on on those records and how he sung, particularly how he sung. You know, everyone has ways that work for them. And so, and Paul was also good at understanding that and knowing when to, how to work certain people. Um, I'm the kind of personality that, once I start something, I will not stop until it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, that means that I work myself into the ground and it's not a pretty sight. And other bands I've produced as well, like, you know, there'll be times where it's 11 o'clock and the band's, you know, starting to yawn and get tired. And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. People sleep, you know, because I, I could li- literally do it all day, all night. I will not stop. Brendan doesn't stop. It's mid December 2018 the start of a steamy Warrandyte summer in the hills northeast of Melbourne. They're through the first half of recording. Next episode, the second half. And it was ended up being sort of final week before Josh could really hit the notes he needed to hit. I, th- I guess it was a bit scary. 
you know, they weren't sure where it was sitting. And in the nicest way possible, I'd have to sort of try to say, you know, I just, I don't really like it. <laughs> this is 180 Grams, episode two of six, all about the Teskey Brothers' second studio album, Run Home Slow, released in 2019. More information is there in the episode notes. If you're enjoying it, I know you're enjoying it, you're loving it. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where we have produced this show. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, for they hold the memories and cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples within the Kulin Nation. We wish to celebrate the rich history of Indigenous storytelling and hope to uphold this as testament to their eternal influence. 180 Grams is brought to you by The Mushroom Group and hosted by me, Mikey Carl. Executive producer is Matt Gadinsky of The Mushroom Group. Thanks to the following people who worked on this episode. Courtney Carthy, Tom Canellan, Lucas Setyadi, Laura McCulley, Dan Baker, Loz Grice, Marushka Cornelius, and Mushroom Creative House. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review in the app and tell a friend about the show. 